The Man from 2071 by Sewell Peasley Wright. Perhaps this story does not belong with my other tales of the Special Patrol Service, and yet there is, or should be, a report somewhere in the musty archives of the service covering the incident, not accurately and not in detail. Among a great mass of old records which I was browsing through the other day, I happened across that report. It occupied exactly three lines in the logbook of the Irtak. Just before departure, discovered stowaway, apparently demented, and ejected him. For the hard-headed higher-ups of the service, that was report enough. Had I given the facts, they would have called me to the base for a long-winded investigation. It would have taken weeks and weeks, filled with fussy questioning. Dozens of stoop-shouldered laboratory men would have prodded and snooped and asked for long, written accounts. In those days, keeping the logbook was writing enough for me, and being grounded at base for weeks would have been punishment. Nothing would have been gained by a detailed report. The service needed action rather than reports anyway. But now that I am an old man, on the retired list, I have time to write, and it will be a particular pleasure to write this account, for it will go to prove that these much-honored scientists of ours, with all their tremendous appropriations and long-winded discussions, are not nearly so wonderful as they think they are. They are, and always have been, too much interested in abstract formulas, and not enough in their practical application. I have never had a great deal of use for them. I had received orders to report to Earth regarding a dull, routine matter of reorganizing the emergency base which had been established there. Earth, I might add, for the benefit of those of you who have forgotten your geography of the universe, is not a large body, but its people furnish almost all of the officer personnel of the Special Patrol Service. Being a native of Earth, I received the assignment with considerable pleasure, despite its dry and uninteresting nature. It was a good sight to see old Earth again, bundled up in her cottony clouds, growing larger and larger in the television disc. No matter how much you wander around the universe, no matter how small and insignificant the world of your birth, there is a tie that cannot be denied. I have set my ships down upon many a strange and unknown world, with danger and adventure awaiting me, but there is, for me, no thrill which quite duplicates that of viewing again that particular little ball of mud from whence I sprang. I've said that before. I shall probably say it again. I am proud to claim Earth as my birthplace, small and out of the way as she is. Our base on Earth was adjacent to the city of Great Denver, on the Pacific coast. I could not help wondering, as we settled swiftly over the city, whether our historians and geologists and other scientists were really right in saying that Denver had at one period been far from the Pacific. It seemed impossible, as I gazed down on that blue, tranquil sea, that it had engulfed, hundreds of years ago, such a vast portion of North America. But I suppose the men of science know... I need not go into the routine business that brought me to Earth. Suffice it to say that it was settled quickly, by the afternoon of the second day. I am referring, of course, to Earth days, which are slightly less than half the length of an Aaron of universe time. A number of my friends had come to meet me, visit with me during my brief stay on Earth, and, having finished my business with such dispatch, I decided to spend that evening with them and leave the following morning. It was very late when my friends departed, 
and I strolled out with them to their monocar, returning the salute of the air tax's lone sentry, who was pacing his post before the huge circular exit of the ship. Biding my friend's farewell, I stood there for a moment under the heavens, brilliant with blue cold stars, and watched the car sweep swiftly and soundlessly away towards the towering mass of the city. Then, with a little sigh, I turned back to the ship. The airtack lay lightly upon the earth, her polished sides gleaming in the light of the crescent moon. In the side towards me, the circular entrance gaped like a sleepy mouth. The sentry, knowing the eyes of his commander were upon him, strode back and forth with brisk military precision. Slowly, still thinking of my friends, I made my way toward the ship. I had taken but a few steps when the sentry's challenge rang out sharply. Halt! Who goes there? I glanced up in surprise. Shiro, the man on guard, had seen me leave, and he could have no difficulty in recognizing me. But the challenge had not been meant for me. Between myself and the air tack, there stood a strange figure. An instant before, I would have sworn that there was no human in sight, save myself and the sentry. Now this man stood not twenty feet away, swaying as though ill or terribly weary, barely able to lift his head and turn it toward the sentry. Friend, he gasped. Friend, and I think he would have fallen to the ground if I had not clapped an arm around his shoulders and supported him. Just, just a moment, whispered the stranger. I am a bit faint. I'll be all right. I stared down at the man, unable to reply. This was a nightmare, no less. I could feel the sentry staring, too. The man was dressed in a style so ancient that I could not remember the period, 21st century at least, perhaps earlier, and while he spoke English, which is a language of Earth, he spoke it with a harsh and unpleasant accent that made his words difficult, almost impossible to understand. Their meaning did not fully sink in, until an instant after he had finished speaking. Shiro, I said sharply, help me take this man inside. He's ill. Yes, sir. The guard leaped to obey the order, and together we led him into the air tack and to my own stateroom. There was some mystery here, and I was eager to get at the root of it. The man with the ancient costume and strange accent had not come to the spot where we had seen him by any means with which I was familiar. He had materialized out of the thin air. There was no other way to account for his presence. We propped the stranger in my most comfortable chair, and I turned to the sentry. He was staring at our weird visitor with wondering, fearful eyes, and when I spoke, he started as though stung by an electric shock. Very well, I said briskly. That will be all. Resume your post immediately. And, Shiro. Yes, sir. It will not be necessary for you to make a report of this incident. I will attend to that. Understand? Yes, sir. And I think it is to the man's everlasting credit, and to the credit of the service which had trained him, that he executed a snappy salute, did an about-face, and left the room without another glance at the man slumped down in my big easy chair. With a feeling of cold... Nervous apprehension such as I have seldom experienced in a rather varied and active life, I turned then to my visitor. He had not moved, save to lift his head. He was staring at me, 
his eyes fixed in his chalky white face. They were dark, long eyes, abnormally long, and they glittered with a strange, uncanny light. "'Are you feeling better?' I asked. His thin, bloodless lips moved, but for a moment no sound came from them. He tried again. "'Water,' he said. I drew him a glass from the tank in the wall in my room. He downed it in a gulp and passed the empty glass back to me. "'More,' he whispered. He drank the second glass more slowly, his eyes darting swiftly, curiously around the room. Then his brilliant, piercing glance fell upon my face. "'Tell me,' he commanded sharply. "'What year is this?' I stared at him. It occurred to me that my friends might have conceived and executed an elaborate hoax, and then I dismissed the idea instantly. There were no scientists among them who could make a man materialize out of nothingness. "'Are you in your right mind?' I asked slowly. "'Your question strikes me as damnably odd, sir.' The man laughed wildly and slowly straightened up in the chair. His long, bony fingers clasped and unclasped slowly, as though feeling were just returning to them. "'Your question,' he replied in his odd, unfamiliar accent, "'is not unnatural under the circumstances.' I assure you that I am of sound mind, a very sound mind. He smiled, rather a ghastly smile, and made a vague, slight gesture with one hand. Will you be good enough to answer my question? What year is this? Earth year, you mean? He stared at me, his eyes flickering. Yes, he said. Earth year. There are other ways of... Figuring time now? Certainly. Each inhabited world has its own system. There is a master system for the universe. Who are you? What are you that you should ask me a question the smallest child should know? First, he insisted, tell me what year this is. Earth reckoning. I told him, and the light flickered up in his eyes again, a cruel, triumphant light. Thank you, he nodded, and then slowly and softly, as though he spoke to himself, he added, Less than half a century off. Less than half a century. And they laughed at me. How I shall laugh at them presently. You choose to be mysterious, sir? I asked impatiently. No. Presently you shall understand, and then you will forgive me, I know. I have come through an experience such as no man has ever known before. If I am shaken, weak, surprising to you, it's because of that experience. He paused for a moment, his long, powerful fingers gripping the arms of the chair. You see, he added, I have come out of the past into the present, or from the present into the future. It depends upon one's viewpoint. If I am distraught, then forgive me. A few minutes ago, I was Jacob Harbaugh in a little laboratory on the edge of a mountain park near Denver. Now I am a nameless being, hurtled into the future, pausing here many centuries from my own era. Do you wonder now that I am unnerved? Do you mean, I said slowly, trying to understand what he had babbled forth, that you have come out of the past? That you... that you... 
it was too monstrous to put into words. I mean, he replied, that I was born in the year 2028. I am 43 years old, or I was a few minutes ago, but, and his eyes flickered again with that strange, mad light, I am a scientist. I have left my age behind me for a time. I have done what no other human being has ever done. I have gone centuries into the future. I... I do not understand. Could he, after all, be a madman? How can a man leave his own age and travel ahead to another? Even in this age of yours, they have not discovered that secret? Harbauer exulted. You travel the universe, I gather. And yet your scientists have not yet learned to move in time? Listen, let me explain to you how simple the theory is. I take it you are an intelligent man. Your uniform and its insignia would seem to indicate a degree of rank. Am I correct? I am John Hansen, commander of the IRTAC, of the Special Patrol Service, I informed him. Then you will be capable of grasping, in part at least, what I have to tell you. It is really not so complex. Time is a river, flowing steadily, powerful, at a fixed rate of speed. It sweeps the whole universe along on its bosom at that same speed. That is my conception of it. Is it clear to you? I should think, I replied, that the universe is more like a great rock in the middle of your stream of time that stands motionless while the minutes, the hours, and the days roll by. No, the universe travels on the breast of the current of time. It leaves yesterday behind and sweeps on towards tomorrow. It has always been so until I challenged this so-called immutable law. I said to myself, why should a man be a helpless shtick upon this stream of time? Why need he be born on this slow current at the same speed? Why can he not do as a man in a boat? Paddle backwards or forwards? Back to a point already past? Ahead, faster than the current, to a point that drifting he would not reach so soon? In other words, why can he not slip back through time to yesterday? Or ahead to tomorrow? And... If to tomorrow, why not to next year? Next century? These are the questions I asked myself. Other men have asked themselves the same questions, I know. They were not new. But... Harbauer drew himself far forward in his chair and leaned close to me, almost as though he prepared himself to spring. No other man ever found the answer. That remained for me. I was not entirely correct, of course. I found that one could not go back in time. The current was against one, but to go ahead with the current at one's back was different. I spent six years on the problem, working day and night, handicapped by lack of funds, ridiculed by the press. Look! Harbauer reached inside his antiquated costume and drew forth a flat packet which he passed to me. I unfolded it curiously, my fingers clumsy with excitement. I could hardly believe my eyes. The thing Harbauer had handed me was a folded fragment of newspaper, such as I had often seen in museums. I recognized the old-fashioned type and the peculiar arrangement of the columns, but instead of being yellow and brittle with age and preserved in fragments behind sealed glass, this paper was fresh and white, and the ink was still as black as the day it had been printed. What this man said, then, 
must be true. He must... I can understand your amazement, said Harbauer. It had not occurred to me that a paper which, to me, was printed only yesterday, would seem so antique to you, but that must appear as remarkable to you as fresh papyrus, newly inscribed with the hieroglyphics of the ancient Egyptians, would seem to one of my own day and age. But read it. You will see how my world viewed my efforts. There was a sharpness, a bitterness in his voice that made me vaguely uneasy, even though he had solved the riddle of moving in time, as men have always moved in space, my first conjecture, that I had a madman to deal with, might not be so far from the truth. Ridicule and persecution have unseated the reason of all too many men. The type was unfamiliar to me, and the spelling was archaic, but I managed to stumble through the article. It read, as nearly as I can recall it, like this. Harbauer says time is like Great River. Jacob Harbauer, local inventor, in an exclusive interview, propounds the theory that man can move in time exactly as a boat moves about the surface of a swift-flowing river, save that he cannot go back into time on account of the opposition of the current. That is very fortunate, this writer feels. It would be a terrible thing, for example, if some good-looking scamp from our present 21st century were to dive into the past and steal Cleopatra from Antony or start an affair with Josephine and send Napoleon scurrying back from the front and let the Napoleonic Wars go to pot, we'd have to have all our histories rewritten. Harbauer is well known in Denver as the eccentric inventor who, for the last five or six years, has occupied a lonely shack in the mountains, guarded by a high fence of barbed wire. He claims that he has now perfected equipment which will enable him to project himself forward in time, and expects to make the experiment in the very near future. This writer was permitted to view the equipment which Harbauer says will shoot him into the future. The apparatus is housed in a low, barn-like building in the rear of his shack. Along one side of the room is a veritable bank of electrical apparatus with innumerable controls, many huge tubes of unfamiliar shape and appearance, a mighty generator of some kind, and an intricate maze of gleaming copper bus bar. In the center of the room is a circle of metal, about a foot in thickness, insulated from the flooring by four truncated cones of fluted glass. This disc is composed of two unfamiliar metals arranged in concentric circles. Above this disc, at a height of about eight feet, is suspended a sort of grid composed of extremely fine silvery wires supported on a framework of black insulating material. Asked for a demonstration of his apparatus, Harborough finally consented to perform an experiment with a dog, a white, short-haired mongrel that, Harbauer informed us, he kept to warn him of approaching strangers. He bound the dog's legs together, securely, and placed the struggling animal in the center of the heavy metal disc. Then the inventor hurried to the central control panel and manipulated several switches, which caused a number of things to happen almost at once. The big generator started with a growl, and settled immediately into a deep hum. A whole row of tubes glowed with a purplish brilliancy. There was a crackling sound in the air, and the grid above the disk seemed to become incandescent, although it gave forth no apparent heat. From the rim of the metal disk, thin blue streamers of electric flame shot up towards the grid, and the little white dog began to whine nervously. "'Now watch!' shouted Harbauer. He closed another switch, 
and the space between the disk and the grid became a cylinder of livid light for a period of perhaps two seconds. Then Harbauer pulled all the switches and pointed triumphantly to the disk. It was empty. We looked around the room for the dog, but he was not visible anywhere. I have sent him nearly a century into the future, said Harbauer. We will let him stay there a moment, and then bring him back. You mean to say, we asked, that the pup is now roaming around somewhere in the 22nd century? Harbauer said he meant just that, and added that he would now bring the dog back to the present time. The switches were closed again, but this time it was the metal plate that seemed incandescent, and the grid above that shot out the streaks of thin blue flame. As he closed the last switch, the cylinder of light appeared again, and when the switches were opened, there was the dog in the center of the disk, howling and struggling against his bonds. Look, cried Harbauer, he's been attacked by another dog, or some other animal, while in the future. See the blood on his shoulders? We ventured the humble opinion that the dog had scratched or bit himself in struggling to free himself from the cords with which Harbauer had bound him, and the inventor flew into a terrible rage, cursing and waving his arms as though demented. Feeling that discretion was the better half of valor, we beat a hasty retreat, pausing at the barbed wire gate only long enough to ask Mr. Harbauer if he would be good enough, sometimes when he had a few minutes of leisure, to dash into next week and bring back some stock market reports to aid us in our investment efforts. Under the circumstances, we did not wait for a response, but we presume that we are persona non grata at the Harbauer establishment from this time on. All in all, we're not sorry. I folded the paper and passed it back to him. Some of the allusions I did not understand, but the general tone of the article was very clear indeed. You see, said Harbauer, his voice grating with anger. I tried to be courteous to that man, to give him a simple, convincing demonstration of the greatest scientific achievement in centuries. And the fool returned to write this to hold me up to ridicule, to paint me as a crack-brained, wild-eyed fanatic. It's hard for the layman to conceive of a great scientific achievement, I said soothingly. All great inventions and inventors have been laughed at by the populace at large. True, true, Harbauer nodded his head solemnly. But just the same. He broke off suddenly and forced a smile. I found myself wishing that he had completed that broken sentence, however. I felt that he had almost revealed something that would have been most enlightening. But enough of that fool and his babblings, he continued. I am here as living proof that my experiment is a success, and I have a tremendous curiosity about the world in which I find myself. But enough of that fool and his babblings. I am here as living proof that my experiment is a success, and I have a tremendous curiosity about the world in which I find myself. This, I take it, is a ship for navigating space? Right, the air tack of the Special Patrol Service. Would you care to look around a bit? I would indeed. There was a tremendous eagerness in the man's voice. You're not too tired? No, I am quite recovered from my experience. Harbauer leapt to his feet, those abnormally long, slitted eyes of his glowing. I am a scientist, 
and I am most curious to see what my fellows have created since... since my own era. I picked up my dressing gown and tossed it to him. Slip this on, then, to cover your clothing. It would be an object of too much curiosity to those men who are on duty, I suggested. I was taller than he, and the garment came within a few inches of the floor. He knotted the cincher around his middle and thrust his hands into the pocket, turning to me for approval. I nodded and motioned for him to precede me through the door. As an officer of the Special Patrol Service, it has often been my duty to show parties and individuals through my ship. Most of these parties are composed of females who have only exclamations to make instead of intelligent comment, and who possess an unbound capacity for asking utterly asinine questions. It was, therefore, a real pleasure to show Harbauer through the ship. He was a keen, eager listener. When he asked a question, and he asked many of them, he showed an amazing grasp of the principles involved. My knowledge of our equipment was, of course, only practical, save for the rudimentary theoretical knowledge that everyone has of present-day inventions and devices. The ethon tubes, which lighted the ship, interested him but little. The atomic generators, the gravity pads, their generators, and the disintegrator ray, however, he delved into with that of frenzied ador, of only which a scientist, I believe, is capable. Questions poured out of him, and I answered them as best I could, sometimes completely and satisfactorily, so that he nodded and said, I see, I see, and sometimes so poorly that he frowned and cross-questioned me insistently until he obtained the desired information. In the big, soundproof navigating room, I explained the operation of the numerous instruments, including the two three-dimensional charts, actuated by super-radio reflexes, the television disc, the attraction meter, the surface temperature gauge, and the complex control system. Forward, I added, is the operating room. You can see it through these glass partitions. The navigating officer in command relays his orders to the men in the operating room, who attend to the actual execution of those orders. Just as a pilot, or the navigating officer of a ship of my day, gives his orders to the quartermaster at the wheel, nodded Harbauer, and began firing questions at me again, going over the ground we had covered to check up on his information. I was amazed at the uncanny accuracy with which he had grasped such a great mass of technical detail. It had taken me years of study to pick up what he had taken from me, and apparently retained intact, in something more than an hour, Earth time. I glanced at the Earth time clock on the wall of the navigating room as he triumphantly finished his questioning. Less than an hour remained before the time set for our return trip. I'm sorry, I commented, to be an ungracious host, but I am wondering what your plans may be. You see, we are due to start in less than an hour, and a passenger would be in your way? Harbauer smiled as he uttered the words, but there was a gleam in his long eyes that rather startled me, and I wondered if I had only imagined the steeliness of his voice. Don't let that worry you, sir. It's not worrying me, I replied, watching him closely. I have enjoyed a very remarkable, a very pleasant experience. If you should care to remain aboard the Irtak, I should like exceedingly to have you accompany us to our base, where I could place you in touch with other laboratory men with whom you will have much in common. Harbauer threw back his head and laughed, not pleasantly. Thanks, he said, but I have no time for that. They could give me no knowledge that I need now. 
You have taught me and showed me enough. I understand now how you have released atomic energy. It is a matter so simple that a child should have guessed it, and man has wondered about it for centuries, knowing that the power was there, but lacking a key to unfetter it. And now, I have that key. True, but perhaps our scientists would like, in exchange, the secret of moving forward in time, I suggested reasonably enough. What do I care about Zim? snapped Harbauer. He loosened the cord of the robe with a quick, impatient gesture, as though it confined him too tightly, and then threw the garment from him. Then suddenly, he took a quick stride towards me and thrust out his ugly head. I know enough now to give me power over all my world, he cried. Haven't you guessed the reason for my interest in your engines of destruction? I have come down the centuries ahead of my generation so that I might come back with power in my hand. Power to wipe out the fools who have made a mock of me. And I have that power here. He tapped his forehead dramatically with his left hand. I will bring a new regime to my era, he continued, fairly shouting now. I will be what many men have tried to be, and what no man has ever been. Master of the world! Absolute, unquestioned, supreme master! He paused, his eyes glaring into mine, and I knew from the light that shone behind those long, narrow slits that I was dealing with a madman. True, you will, I said gently, moving carelessly towards the microphone. With that in my hand, a slight pressure on the general attention signal, and I would have the whole crew of the AirTac here in a moment. But I had explained the workings of the navigating room's equipment only too well. Stop! snarled Hallbauer, and his right hand flashed up. See this? Perhaps you don't know what it is. I'll tell you. It's an automatic pistol. Not so efficient as your disintegrator ray, but deadly enough. There is certain death for eight men in mine hand. Understand? Perfectly. What an utter fool I had been. I was not armed, and I knew that Harbauer spoke the truth. I had often seen weapons similar to the one he held in the military museums. They are still there, if you're curious. Rusty and broken, but not unlike our present atomic pistols in general appearance. They propelled the bullet by the explosion of a sort of powder. Inefficient, of course, but as he had said, deadly enough for the purpose. Good. You are a good sort, Hansen, but don't take any chances. I'm not going to. I promise you. You see, and he laughed again, the light in his long eyes dancing with evil, I'm not likely to be punished for a few killings committed centuries after I'm dead. I have never killed a man, but I won't hesitate to do so now, if one or more should get in my way. But why? I asked soothingly. Should you wish to kill anyone? You have what you came for, you say. Why not depart in peace? He smiled crookedly, and his eyes narrowed with cunning. You approve of my little plan to dominate the world? He asked softly, his eyes searching my face. No, I said boldly, refusing to lie to him. I do not, and you know it. Very true. He pulled out his watch with his left hand, 
and held it before his eyes so that he could observe the time without losing sight of me for even an instant. I doubted that I could secure your willing cooperation. Therefore, I am commanding it. You see, there are certain instruments and pieces of equipment that I should like to take back to my laboratory with me. Perhaps I would be able to reproduce them without models, but with the models, my task will be much easier. The question remaining is a simple one. Will you give the proper orders to have this equipment removed to the spot where you first saw me? Or shall I be obliged to return to my own era without this equipment? Leaving behind me a dead commander of the Special Patrol Service and any other who may try to stop me? I tried to keep cool under the lash of his mocking voice. I have never been adept at holding my temper when I should, but somehow I managed it this time. Frowning, I kept him waiting for a reply, utilizing the time to do what was perhaps the hardest, fastest thinking of my life. There wasn't a particle of doubt in my mind regarding his ability to make good on his threat, nor his readiness to do so. I caught the faint glimmering of an idea and fenced with it eagerly. How are you going to get back to your own period, your own era? I asked him. You told me, I believe, that it was impossible to move backward in time. That is not answering my question, he said, leering. Don't think you are fooling me. But I'll tell you just the same. I can go back to my own era. That is, back to my own actual existence. I shall return just two hours after I leave. I could not go back farther than that, and it is not necessary that I do so. I can go back only because I came from that present. I am not really of this future at all. I go back from whence I came. But, I objected, thinking of something I had read in the clipping he showed me. You're not going back to your own era. You cannot. If you returned, you would put your project into execution, and history does not record that activity. I saw from the sudden narrowing of his abnormally long eyes that I had caught his interest and pressed my advantage hastily. Remember that all the history of your time is written, Harbauer. It is in the books of Earth's history with which every child of this age into which you have thrust yourself is familiar and those histories do not record the domination of the world by yourself. So, you are confronted by an impossibility. My reasoning now sounds specious, and yet it was a line of thought which could not be waved aside. I saw Hobauer's black brows knit together and mounting anger darken his face. I do not know, but I believe I was never nearer death than I was at that instant. Fool, he cried. Idiot! Imbecile! Do you think you can confuse me? Turn me from my purpose with words? Do you? Do you believe me to be a child or a weakling? I tell you, I have planned this thing to the last detail. If I had not found what I sought on this first trip, I would have taken another, a dozen, a score, until I found the information I sought. The last six years of my life, I have worked day and night to this end. Your histories and your words. My plan had worked. The man was beside himself with insane anger, and in his rage he forgot, for an instant, that he was my captor. Taking a desperate chance, I launched myself at his legs. His weapon roared over my head just as I struck. 
I felt the hot gas from the thing beat against my neck. I caught the reeking scent of the smoke. Then we were both on the floor and locked in a mad embrace. Harbauer was a smaller man than myself, but he had the amazing strength of a Zinian. He fought viciously, using every ounce of his strength against me, striving to bring his weapon into use, hammering my head upon the floor, racking my body mercilessly, grunting, cursing, mumbling constantly as he did so. But I was in better trim than Harbauer. I have never seen a laboratory man who could stand the strain of prolonged physical exertion. Bending over test tubes and meters is no life for a man. At grips with him, I was in my own element, and he was out of his. I let him wear himself out, exerting myself as little as possible, confining my efforts to keeping his weapon where he could not use it. I felt him weakening at last. His breath was coming in great sobs, and his long eyes started from their sockets with the strained effort he was putting forth. And then, with a single mighty effort, I knocked the pistol from his hand so that it slid across the floor and brought up with a crash against the wall of the room. Now, I said, and turned on him. He knew, at that moment when I put forth my strength, that I had been playing with him. I read the shock of sudden fear in his eyes. My right arm went about him in a deadly hold. I had him in a grip that paralyzed him. Grimly, I jerked him to his feet, and he stood there, trembling with weakness, his shoulders heaving as his breath came and went between his teeth. You realize, of course, that you're not going back, I said quietly. Back? Half-dazed, he stared at me through the quivering lids of his peculiar eyes. What do you mean? I mean that you are not going back to your own era. You have come to us, uninvited, and you're going to stay here. No! He shouted and struggled so desperately to free himself that I was hard put to it to hold him without tightening my grip sufficiently to dislocate his shoulders. You wouldn't do that! I must return! I must prove to them! That is exactly what must not happen, and what shall not happen! I interrupted, and what will not happen. You are in a strange predicament, Harbauer. It is already written that you do not return. Can't you see that, man? If it were to be that you left this age and returned to your own, you would make known your discovery. History would record it, and history does not record it. You are struggling not against me, but against, against a fate that has been sealed all these centuries. When I had finished, he stared at me as though hypnotized, motionless and limp in my grasp. Then suddenly he began to shake, and I saw such depths of terror and horror in his eyes as I hoped to never see again. Mechanically, he glanced down at his watch, lifting his wrist into his line of vision, as slowly and ponderously as though it bore a great weight. Two, two minutes, he whispered huskily. Zin? The automatic switch will close back in my laboratory. If I am not standing where, where you found me, between the disk and the grid of my time machine, where the reverse energy can reach me to, to take me back, God! He sagged in my arms and drooped to his knees, sobbing. And yet, what you say is true. It is already written that I did not return. His sobs cut harshly through the silence of the room. Pitying his despair, 
I reach down to give him a sympathetic pat on the shoulder. It is a terrible thing to see a man break down as Harborough had done. As he felt my grip on him relax, he suddenly shot his fist into the pit of my stomach and leaped to his feet. Groaning, I doubled up, weak and nerveless, for the instant, from the vicious, unexpected blow. "'Ah!' shrieked Harbauer. "'You soft-hearted fool!' He struck me in the face, sending me crashing to the floor, and snatched up his pistol. "'I'm going now!' he shouted. "'Going! What do I care for your records and your histories? They are not yet written. If they were, I'd change them!' He bent over me and snatched from my hand the ring of keys, one of which I had used to unlock the door of the navigating room. I tried to grip him around the legs, but he tore himself loose, laughing insanely in a high-pitched, cackling sound that seemed hardly human. "'Farewell!' he called mockingly from the doorway. Then the door slammed, and as I staggered to my feet, I heard the lock click. I must have acted then by instinct or inspiration. There was no time to think. It would take him not more than three or four seconds to make his way to the exit, stroll by the guard to the spot where we had found him, and disappear. By the time I could arouse the crew and have my orders executed, his time would be up, and unless the whole affair were some terrible nightmare, he would go hurtling back through time to his own era, armed with a devastating knowledge. There's only one possible means of preventing his escape in time. I ran across the room to the emergency operating controls, cut in the automatic generators with one hand, and pulled the vertical ascent lever to full power. There was a sudden shriek of air, and my legs almost thrust themselves through my body. Quickly, I pushed the lever back until, with my eye on the altimeter, I held the air tack at her attained height, something over a mile, as I recall it. Then I pressed the general attention signal and snatched up the microphone. Less than a minute later, Corey and Hendricks, fellow officers, were in the room besieging me with solicitous questions. It had been my idea, of course, to keep Harbauer from leaving the ship, but it was not so destined. Shiro, the sentry on duty outside the air attack, was the only witness to Harbauer's fate. I was walking my post, sir, he reported, watching the sun come up, when suddenly I heard the sound of running feet inside the ship. I turned towards the entrance and drew my pistol to be in readiness. I saw the stranger we had taken into the ship appear at the exit, which as you know, was open. Just as I opened my mouth to command him to halt, the air tack shot up from the ground at terrific speed. The stranger had been about to leap upon me. Indeed, he had discharged some sort of weapon at me, for I heard a crash of sound and a missile of some kind, as you know, passed through my left arm. As the ship left the ground, he tried to draw back, but he was off balance, and the inertia of his body momentarily incapacitated him, I think. He slipped, clutched at the gangway across the threads which seal the exit, and then, at a height I estimate to be around 500 feet, he fell. The air tack shot on up until it was lost to sight, and then the stranger crashed to the ground a few feet from where I was standing, almost exactly the spot where we first saw him, sir. And now, sir, comes the part I guess you'll find hard to believe. When he struck the ground... He was smashed flat. He died instantly. I started to run toward him, and then, and then I stopped. My eyes had not left the spot for a moment, sir, but he, his body, that is, 
suddenly disappeared. That's the truth, sir, for I saw it with my own eyes. There wasn't a sign of him left. I see, I replied. I believe that I did. We had gone straight up, and his body, by no great coincidence, had fallen upon the spot close to the exit of the air tack where we had first found him, and his machine, in operation, had brought him, or rather his mangled body, back to his own age. You have not mentioned this affair to anyone, Shiro? No, sir. It wasn't anything you'd be likely to tell. Nobody would believe you. I went at once to have my arm attended to, and then reported here according to orders. Very good, Shiro. Keep the entire affair to yourself. I will make the necessary reports. That's an order. Understand? Yes, sir. Then that will be all. Take good care of your arm. He saluted with his good hand and left me. Later in the day, I wrote in the logbook of the AirTac the report I mentioned at the beginning of this tale. Just before departure, discovered stowaway, apparently demented, and ejected him. That was a perfectly truthful statement, and it served its purpose. I have given the whole story in detail just to prove what I have so often contended, that these owlish laboratory men whom this age reveres so much are not nearly so wise and omnipotent as they think they are. I am quite sure that they would have discredited or attempted to discredit my story had I told it at the time. They would have resented the idea that someone so much ahead of them had discovered a principle that still baffles this age of ours, and I would have had no evidence to present. Perhaps even now the story will be discredited. If so, I do not care. I am much too old and too near the portals of that impenetrable mystery, in the shadow of which I have stood so many times, to concern myself with what others may think or say. I know that what I have related here is truth and in my mind I have a vivid and rather pitiful picture of a mangled body, bloody and alone, in the barn-like structure the ancient paper had described, a body broken and motionless, lying athwart the striated metal disc like a sacrificial victim, a victim and sacrifice of science. There have been many such. End of The Man from 2071 